It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. This Locked On Podcast is brought to you by Home Chef. Now that the novelty of the new year has dwindled down, how are your resolutions coming? One of mine was to order less, take out, cook more at home. But I'll be honest, I haven't been consistent. That is until I found Home Chef. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify the cooking experience and without robbing you of the joy of putting a dish together yourself. I'm Pescatarian, and they cater to a variety of dietary needs. I had this super refreshing ginger sesame salmon, a beautiful trout dish, and a super comforting shrimp and vegetable orzo dish, all of which took me less than 30 minutes to put together. For a limited time right now, Home Chef is offering all of our listeners 18 free meals plus free shipping on your first box, and free dessert for life at homechef.com slash locked on. That's homechef.com slash locked on for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. Homechef.com slash locked on must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert. Today's Locked On Reds, and in fact, every podcast episode for the month of May for the Locked On Reds podcast is brought to you by Built Bar. Reach for the best-tasting protein bar that actually tastes like a candy bar on the market today. Go to BuiltBar.com, and in the checkout, enter promo code LOCKEDON. That's L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N for $10 off your first order. You are Locked On Reds, your daily Cincinnati Reds podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome into your daily source for the Cincinnati Reds throughout the offseason. This is the Locked On Reds podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Carr. And here we go. For today's Locked On Reds, I have a special guest with me today. He is the ace of the staff of the Locked On Reds podcast. His name is Bronson Arroyo. Bronson, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing good. Back on the air with you. It's good to have you back, man. How's things been going for you through this whole uh, wonderful, crazy time of quarantine? It's been all right. You know, um, I'm usually a super busy guy, so uh, it's been kind of nice to not have um, anyone have the ability to, to invite me to, to dinner or to a charity event or to play a music show. <laughs> so uh, I, I've been, uh, I've just been playing a lot of golf and, um, working out a little bit and playing some music in the basement by myself. But, uh, yeah, it's been a little bit of quiet time. I haven't minded at all. I mean, obviously, you know, everybody's in a different boat and if, you know, if your job got put on, on hold and, and, uh, money is tight, then that can be a bit of a stress. But for me, um, just being retired, it's been um, it's been kind of nice just to have a little bit of a breather and a little bit of downtime. Definitely, I I can definitely understand the golf part. I, I got out a couple weeks ago, man. It felt so nice to be on the golf course. Yeah, sometimes we we try to we try to get out to some nice courses. It's uh, I've been spending time between Florida and Cincinnati, actually driving back and forth. And um, you know, as my game's getting a little bit better, the game is so hard. It's 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 a challenge to get out there on some nice courses and see if you can um, compete because you kind of. I used to delude myself when I was younger and I played in my twenties and you'd shoot like an 88 on a course and you thought you were good, but then you, you play a real course and you shoot like a 108. So it's, it's been <laughs> nice to try to challenge myself playing better, better quality courses. 
That's the thing I know about golf. It 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 has no favorites. Doesn't matter how good you are one day, the next day it's it's gonna try and uh, get you back to where you think you need to do some work on your swing. And I I love playing golf though, man. Um, when this uh, this week I've been going back to the 2012 season. And I really wanted to get you on here because this was one of the best seasons as far as I've been alive to be a Reds fan. And I know that the ending of it wasn't exactly what we were looking for. But I wanted to get you on here and and talk to you about that season because there were a lot of great things about it. What is the first thing when when I ask about the 2012 season as a member of the Cincinnati Reds starting rotation that nobody missed a start. What, what, what's the first thing that you think of? A couple of things. One, one is like you said, the, the five starters that really held it down that year and um, nobody missed a start. Uh, Cause I'd only been on two teams like that. I don't know how many times that's happened in major league baseball, but it can't be many. And uh, for everybody to stay healthy, for everybody to show up and make their turn for everybody to not get hit by a line drive. Um, you know, to not have some sort of a sickness on the day they had to pitch is, is pretty remarkable. And I did that in 2004 with the Boston Red Sox, Pedro Martinez, Kurt Schilling, myself, Derek Lowe, and Tim Wakefield. And um, I got a, a picture of that. It, it, there's only two staffs that I took a picture of, and this is before the season ended both times, just by coincidence. I had a picture of those five guys uh, all together. And then in 2012, the same thing. Um, after we clinched, I've, I've been asking these guys for three months to take a picture together. And I've got this beautiful photo of the five of us standing there with champagne all on us. And, nice. um, you know, that's what I really think about is the, is, uh, the five starting pitchers that really pulled the rope to, to keep that team kind of alive that year. What was it that kept you all going the entire year? Well, I think, I think, you know, Johnny, Johnny Cueto and, um, you know, basically Cueto, Latos, Homer and Mike Leak, all of them were kind of coming into their own at the same time. They were all around the same age. They, um, you know, they're in their mid-20s, 24, 25, 26. And, but they had been around the big leagues long enough to understand how it was to work on a day-to-day basis. And that was basically what I brought to the table was, was the fact that I had been pitching 200 innings year after year for many years before that. And I was the thinnest guy on the staff. I was the oldest guy on the staff. But I was still finding ways to continue to put up those numbers, um, you know, winning more than 10 games every year, um, you know, making all my starts and, and giving them, you know, 20 quality starts and, and, and 200 innings. And so, you know, th- those guys, I kind of pulled the whole staff along because if I could do it, then it felt like there's no reason why you guys can't do it. And, you know, there's always that little bit of kind of, it's not really rivalry, but it's just, you know, you're setting an example. And when you work hard in the weight room and, you, and guys see you doing that, they want to get in there and do the same thing. And so, um, I think that staff, you know, it was it was partly youth and and partly the fact that um, you know, I was setting an example for those guys to go out and 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 seem like it was possible because I've been doing it for years. They'd seen me do that for six straight seasons now. Um, not that they were on the team the whole time, but you know, through the grapevine, you look back and you go, "Oh, Bronson's been here since '06, and he throws 200 innings every single year. He's never missed a start, right?" I mean, people know those things inside of a locker room, and that can have an effect on people, kind of in a in a um, not in a direct way, but kind of an indirect way, you know, just kind of hearing through the grapevine. Was there a game that really stuck out to you from that year? Something that if you look back on it, you're like, oh man, this is the game that I think about. Yeah, I mean, for for me personally, if you say, you know, on, if you're thinking about the good stuff, um, I'm you know I'm thinking about that playoff start in San Francisco, oh. game two against Bumgarner. You know, I mean, he goes on a run after that and doesn't lose a playoff game 
for a long, long time. And we beat them bad that night. I think it was nine to nothing. I had a no hitter going into the sixth. And um, it's just one of those days where you felt strong on the mound. Your stuff was good. Even from the out, the outset of warming up, I had crisp stuff in the bullpen that night. Um, you know, the weather was nice and you just, you're playing in an electric atmosphere and you're, you're keeping, you know, them at bay and you're keeping that crowd really quiet. And, uh, you know, you don't get to do that every day. So when you, when you get to play, you know, at the, at the very top of the mountain and you have your A game and you're succeeding, you know, it's something you never forget. It's definitely, um, that's probably top, uh, two, one of my top two or three outings of all time. So that's, that's what I think about on the good side. When I think about the downside of it, you know, it's that obviously we didn't pull that series out and didn't get to advance. What, what did the did the aura in the clubhouse kind of change between I mean how did it change from game the end of game 2 to the beginning of game 5 in the division series to the beginning of game 5 yeah i think um well you know we came back home we were obviously ecstatic you know you had a bunch of young guys on this team that had either never been in the playoffs before or definitely never been deep in the playoffs um Except for myself, there probably wasn't many guys, you know, because we lost all of our old veteran guys like Ken Griffey Jr., who hadn't been in the playoffs much himself either. But um, we, we had guys that were so young and had come up homegrown through the, through the organization like Jay Bruce and Joey Votto that this was really um, the first taste of, of having an opportunity to get past that first round after, you know, the Phillies whooped us in, uh, in 2010. So, um, you know, we came back home. We were feeling great about ourselves. We went into game three. You know, Homer had an outstanding night, and, um, you know, he really pitched the lights out, and they just kind of edged it out on us. You know, they just squeaked that game out, game three, and then game four was kind of the same thing. It just felt like we were knocking on the door, but we couldn't really put them away. And so to start game five, um, I think people were probably on edge a little bit. Um, part of it was the fact that Johnny had gone down with the ribcage injury in San Francisco. He had pulled an oblique before game one, and, and they had then, by then taken him off the roster. And Mike Leake pitched game four. And that really took a little bit of – it took a little bit out of our sails. You know, it took a little wind out because Johnny was the guy that, that you needed in, in those types of situations because you needed somebody who had number one stuff, right, to, to battle the best pitchers in the game as you get further into the playoffs. And by him not being able to be activated until the World Series, even if we beat San Francisco – it really felt like, you know, we were fighting an uphill battle at that point. Um, but, you know, we went into that game. I can remember I was, um, I, was, I was down in the tunnel, down in the batting cage, just staying loose the whole time because I wanted to pitch on three days rest the day before. And uh, they went with, with Mike Leake. So Latos was going to pitch game five, but I was going to be right there just in case he got blown up early in the game. Um, but by the time he gave up that grand slam, um, you know, it was almost too late, and then they, they went to the bullpen. Have you ever talked to Buster Posey about that, Homer? No, I have never. I, I have not. Uh, <laughs> I always wondered that. You know, it was. You know, it was. I, I do remember at the end of that game. I remember at the at the end of the game, just having the opportunity with two outs to have Jay Bruce up, and had he hit a home run, that we were, um, we could have pulled the thing off. You know, it was it felt like a, a, a little mini victory just that we had battled back because they really, you know, they really sunk our ship early in the ball game with that grand slam. But, uh, you know, it was, um, it left a terrible, terrible taste in your mouth. Cause you just, you know, you work so hard from, you know, before spring training even starts through eight months and then you get to the dance and, you know, you just, I, I felt like for that team, we just needed to advance to the next round, you know, 
I didn't know if we had a ball club that could that could win the World Series, truly, you know, because some things have to fall into place, and 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 there's a little bit of luck involved there, and we were a pretty young team, pretty inexperienced in the playoffs, but but I felt like it was it was our turn to get past the first round and get into that second round and show some guys, you know, what it was like to get closer to the big dance, and and hopefully that was going to be something we could build on in the future. I know as a fan, I always look back. Kind of like you mentioned the injury with Johnny Cueto, and I'm like, boy, I, I I bet if he doesn't go down, the entire series has a completely different complexion. Do you ever think about it that way? Yeah, sometimes, you know. I mean, we, we obviously um, had a great night on game one because Sam Lecture came in out of the bullpen and Latos came in, and, and we, we snuck out of that almost unscathed. But, but I you know, if Johnny would have been healthy, I think it would have definitely changed something because we would have been able to give him the ball later in the series and we would not have had to activate Mike Leak. You know, I mean, Leak, Leak had a good year, but he was really slowly dying at the end of the season. He, he, um, you know, he had like a mid four ERA and he didn't quite get to the 200 innings. And I, you know, he, I think he had like eight wins, but you know, he was good, but he was, he was slowly, um, he was kind of losing, uh, his, he was losing steam as the season went on. And he, he also wasn't quite ready for that, for that big, um, for the, to get in playoff atmosphere and really compete at that level. And, he, and not that he couldn't, but you would just feel more confident. There's times, you know, if you went back to myself when I was 24, 25 years old and you put me in, in big games, you know, Yankee Red Sox games, I wouldn't have been able to handle it the same way I did when I was 27 and 28, right? There's just something about a couple more years of maturity. And Mike was just at that tipping point where he wasn't quite ready to be at that level yet um, for a year or two. And so if Johnny could have stayed healthy, we would have been able to run him back out there in that series. That would have left guys like Latos and myself maybe even come in out of the bullpen later in the series. Um, you just never know what would have happened. But it was, it was just such a bummer that, you know, he hurt himself swinging the bat in batting practice in game one. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it was me and him to take batting practice. They told us to go out there early. We were going to, while the team was stretching, we were taking batting practice. And Johnny said to me, he hit one, he had a hard line drive to shortstop. And he said, what, in Spanish, he said, watch this, Bronson. I'm going to swing hard like this. I'm going to swing hard tonight at the plate. And after taking a couple of hard cuts and he, was, he wasn't quite loose enough, he pulled a little oblique and he didn't think much of it until he was starting to stretch to get ready for the game. And then he realized, uh-oh, something's wrong. And, um, you know, it was a bit of a problem. Yeah, that, I, I just I, – I can never – it's funny because I had a conversation with a friend of mine the other day about um, how do you view that? What blame do you put on? And I'm like, honestly, man, like when it comes to blame games and stuff like that, like I just put it to bad luck. Like if Johnny Cueto doesn't get hurt, nobody cares about the bullpen moves that Dusty makes. Nobody cares about that because I think they win the series. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need Indeed. I, I, I did. I, I was curious because watching you back then, I know that you had a really good rapport with Ryan Hannigan. Whenever, whenever uh, Devin Mezzarocco came up, what did you think? Did you pitch much with him? And what did you think of pitching with him as opposed to pitching with Ryan? Yeah, you know, Mezzarocco was a guy who he didn't catch me as much as Hannigan, but 
you know, there's, there's something innate about catchers. They kind of, they usually either feel like they're an offensive catcher or a defensive catcher, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there's very few guys that you'd say are kind of even on both sides of the ball. Maybe a guy like Pudge Rodriguez, you could give that to him. I never threw to Pudge. He was obviously had a, a fantastic arm and he had a great bat. I don't know how he received the ball, but when you, when you throw to a catcher, you know, there, there's some guys who kind of invite you to throw strikes. And there's some guys who feel a little bit more like a, a backstop back there. And Devin was a guy whose hands were a little hard. So, you know, sometimes he would kind of clank some balls a little bit. He blocked the ball pretty good. He threw the ball pretty good. But for whatever reason, he wasn't kind of as cozy back there as Ryan Hannigan or David Ross. So, you know, when I was pitching to Hannigan, it just felt like you were locked in a little bit more on throwing strikes. It was something about the way they set up back there that he was inviting me in to throw strikes. And, um, you know, Hannigan's whole game was with defense. And his offense was just icing on top of the cake. If that happened, where if a guy like Devin was in there, you know, you're, you're hoping he does some, some damage with some power. So um, I definitely, you know, loved to pitch to Hannigan over those years. And he also was a guy who just really was kind of a thinker. And um, he, he could follow along to my game plan. And I pitched a very odd way. I pitched outside the box. I threw a lot of soft stuff in fastball counts and vice versa. And, and um, there wasn't a lot of guys in the game who pitched like me. And there also wasn't a lot of guys who – you know, pitched off of two pitches. So I, I would only have a fastball and a curveball at signs when Ryan Hannigan was catching me. I would not put a change down, a cutter, a sinker, nothing. So if he put a one down, it could be a little 78-mile-an-hour cutter. I could cut it at 89. I could sink it at 89. I could throw a straight fastball or I could throw a changeup. He didn't know what was coming. And I wanted that purposely so that way that the, if there was men on second base, I didn't have to code my signs as much as everybody else. And I also didn't have to delay the game shaking him off to get to the pitch that I wanted. And so for that reason, me and him were in sync with these two pitches and I didn't have to tell him what was coming. And, I, and he, we would just basically just create as the game was going on in a way where he was having to kind of really pay attention to what I was doing. But he, he could figure out through my, my patterns that were hard to follow. But if you knew me well enough, you could watch these patterns during the game. And it, it, it gave me and him the ability to really kind of be in sync all the time. Right about a third of your starts that year, you threw over 100 pitches. I've always wondered, can you feel it the next day when you throw 100 as opposed to when you throw 90? No, it, it, it doesn't. Um, the, number, the, the number doesn't reflect the soreness the next couple of days. Usually, okay. um, it's hard to pinpoint it. Usually, it's more about um, how hard were you working inside of those numbers, right? If you threw... If you, if you had an easy early on in the game, if you, if you, you know, if you zip through the first uh, part of the order, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, or you just gave them a couple of hits and you, you breeze through with 12 pitches each inning and you only had, let's say, 40 after three innings, you know, usually a lot of times you could then be able to weather the storm unless something happened late and you really had to dig for a, good, a bunch of good fastballs. Um, but if you got off to a rocky start, you have second and third in the first inning, and you're having to go to your best stuff and snap a bunch of break balls off to try to strike a couple of guys out before you know you even get out of the first inning. Then a lot of times, if then you do settle in and you get deep in the ball game, you might be super sore the next couple of days. But it, it, even and even then, if you if you watch the games and you say, okay, this was a tough game or that was an easy game, it 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 always wasn't perfectly parallel either. It was just um, a thing where you had to go out play catch the next day. And your body would just tell you, like, whoa, I'm really sore today. Or, you know what, I don't have much soreness at all. And I feel like I can just uh, pitch. I could pitch on one day's rest, which I did feel like that a lot of times. But um, 
you know, having a healthy arm is also something that is partially a little bit of luck. You know, how much room do you have in your shoulder? Um, are you having things that are grinding against each other or not? And for whatever reason, I had a pretty healthy arm almost my whole career. So even if I did have some soreness in there, it wasn't the type of soreness that you would, you would think, ow, I don't want to touch a ball. It was more like, oh, that I'm really sore, but I'm going to keep moving this thing and I'm going to heat it up and I'm going to get a massage and we're going to get it out of there and just be ready to, uh, to get back after it in the next couple of days, whether it was a, some long toss or, or in the bullpen. I've always wondered that because I know that a lot of announcers like to harp on like, oh, he's getting close to 100 pitches. They might want to be thinking about getting him out of here soon and all this other stuff. And it always just made me wonder. I'm like, I wonder what the big difference is. Like if he comes out with 85 or 90, some some announcers almost make the point of like, well, he probably could have won another inning or two or something. You know, it's always just a distinction there that I was like, huh, I, I wonder how big a difference there really is. But that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of um, – I always use I, I, I always try to I always tried to, to be as efficient as I could when it came to how I approached everything in the game, whether it was when I went to sleep or what I was eating or how I treated my teammates. You're trying to get the best result out of yourself, and I was really keen on paying attention to, to minor details. And I had read an article early on in my career that Greg Maddox said it was like he gave up the ball one night after like 85 pitches, and they were like, "Why'd you come out of the game so quick?" You know, um, usually you go much deeper in the game, and he said. He said something like, I just knew that everyone in the bullpen had a better chance of getting the next three outs, a better chance than I had of getting the next three outs on that one particular day. And so I, I took, you know, I've always taken honesty is, is, is kind of the best way to go about things and having like a good line of communication. And so when I would talk to Dusty, there would be times when I would have 107 pitches and he, after the sixth, let's say, and he'd say, hey, can, you got another one in you? And I'd say, yeah, I'm good. And then there'd be times when I'd have 92 pitches after six and I'd say, Hey man, I'm completely gassed. And there's a lot of guys who wouldn't, who wouldn't want to give up the ball, but I was just giving him honesty because I wanted to make sure that the times that I did feel good and I still felt strong, I didn't care what that number was, that he was going to let me go back out there and try to get three outs. And so, um, you know, with that being said, it, it, you know, the number, the number was really never that big of a deal to me. It was more about, um, you know, how are you feeling? I mean, I think in 2006, I averaged 110 a game for the whole season, and I threw 240 innings <laughs> that year. And, um, you know, I wasn't any more sore that year than I would have been in any given year before or after. You know, it's about getting in shape, and the arm can handle plenty if it's healthy and you're not throwing at max effort and you're kind of governing yourself as the game goes on and you're trying to find ways to get outs with less effort. Now, if you're going to go out there and try to throw – 100 every pitch, there's just no doubt that people are going to break down. There's just no way around it. Another kind of difference between the way fans think of things and the way that players may think of things, I've, I've always wondered this. Fans go back and, and we talk about Aroldis Chapman and whether he should have been a starter or a closer. And 2012 was kind of a banner year and the decision between that, because I, I think it was that spring training where he came out and he said, I want to pitch out of the bullpen. What was the conversation around the clubhouse like, or, or did you guys even really care about that? Yeah, I think early on it was a, it was a, you know, leading up to that season, we knew that it was going to, they were going to have to make that call. There were people talking about it in the media a lot. We knew when we came into camp that there was going to be an opportunity for him to possibly be a starter but being inside the locker room with him, you know, you get to know people intimately. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes why I get a little frustrated over the years that general managers or owners haven't come to players 
and said, hey, what do you think? Who, 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 who would you sign? Would you sign Miguel Cairo or would you sign Felipe Lopez if it was you as a free agent to be a utility infielder, right? And sometimes we have an insight to a guy, uh, whether it ha- uh, you know, it's about having a little bit of grit or maybe having a little bit more integrity or if, it's a, if a guy is just you know, a little lazy or doesn't like to be in the weight room. Like there, there's, there's little nuances that you can never know unless you're, you're with these guys every day like we are. And so going into that spring, I personally already knew, and I think everybody else already knew that Araldis didn't want any, any part in being a starter pitch, starting pitcher, right? Because the, to be a starting pitcher, you're basically essentially running a marathon and we're going to run the first, you know, we're going to run the first 19 miles of this marathon. And then we're going to hand the baton off to a guy who's going to sprint for a mile and a half. And then he's going to hand the baton off to another guy who will sprint for a mile and a half. And, you know, the, the, the initial grind of, of pitching six or seven innings in those hundred and something pitches is not fun for a lot of people. It, it takes patience. It takes a certain amount of, of governing, governing your adrenaline, governing, you know, your velocity, being able to get out, like I said, with less effort. Mm-hmm. And Araldis was a guy who just wanted to go out there and blow people away, but you can only do that for a short amount of time. So in my mind, I saw him as Usain Bolt of the baseball field, right? And Usain Bolt is not going to want to run a marathon because that's not what he does. That's not what he's built for. And so Chapman, you know, he, he, when he came into camp, he already had it in his mind that he didn't want to be a starter. And I knew that was going to happen because there was no way that he was going to muster up, you know, trying to throw 200 innings. It was a totally different uh, battle that he was going to have to, you know, try to manage if he was going to take on that responsibility. And he, he didn't want it. And I tell you what, this has been an awesome conversation. I appreciate your time. Looking back on 2012, and, and real quick before we go, I had a, I, I had a quick thought. And uh, this is a little bit of putting you on the spotlight and stuff. But um, were you happy whenever Albert Pujols went to L.A.? Uh, well, Albert was <laughs> definitely a guy who that I didn't like to see at the plate. There's no doubt. If you ask who were the toughest guys to get out in my career, Albert's number one on the list. I'd say Barry Bonds is right there, too. But I've had to face Albert m- many more times throughout a season. He also was in the same division. And I, I also was in the big leagues when Albert got called up for the first time. So I basically got to see him through his entire prime and play against him in that way. And, and um, you know, St. Louis was always a team that was, you know, perennially they were the best team in the division. They, they still are to this day. I mean, they, they're still battling um, probably better than anybody else over the, over the last 30 or 40 years in that division. And, and uh, every time you went into St. Louis, you know, it seemed like you, you could have a comfortable lead that would be three to one, four to one. You're going into the six and somehow, some way, it's like two guys on base with two outs and here comes Albert. And um, they had just enough guys, whether it was Lance Berkman or Matt Holliday, they always had enough firepower in the lineup that you really couldn't pitch around Albert all the time. And so, you know, it was not fun to see him. By the time he went to L.A., it was a little bit of breathing room. But, you know, still that, that lineup, they always found ways to put scrappy guys in that lineup, and it always made it very tough. But Al- Albert was – I mean, Al- Albert's as good as – He's as good as anybody who's ever played the game and ever will play the game, especially for the, for the first 10 years of his career. Bronson, thank you so much, sir, and hope to talk to you again. All right. Appreciate it. Prime members, you can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. 
Download the Amazon Music app today.